The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have our special guest, uh, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Um, Thank you for taking the time um, out of your busy schedule to join us today. Uh, Kirk, it's, uh, it's good to have you with us. Well, it's always great to be here, and I appreciate um, I appreciate you having me, and uh, always look forward to talking with you about uh, critical issues facing Wabanaki people, Penobscot in particular. And so, so thank you very much. Yep. Um, you were here last in May, and uh, we were talking about um, the economy back then, and. Uh, Maybe I'd like to just follow up just a little bit on that conversation before we move on to the next level. So what I was most interested in that we talked about last time was the uh, workforce uh, uh, investment project. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. Um, We're extremely proud of that project. And and as we talked about last time, you know, it really created an opportunity. You know, it's through the administration for Native Americans uh, in conjunction with um, our education department, our housing department, and Penobscot Indian Nation Enterprises. Um, The administration um, really started to um, take a hard look at... um, how we were investing in our workforce, how we were preparing people, not only uh, we tend to have this kind of tunnel vision on uh, tribal governmental jobs rather than focusing on um, how do we get people the skills to go do what they want to do. And and particularly as the community grows and gets more diverse, that uh, many skill sets are needed for um, the advancement of the tribe as well as um, obviously uh, making sure we have a good skilled workforce to draw from. Um, we got through our first group of people here recently, um, graduated them, uh, where they're, um, they were working 52 weeks in the training program, in the construction trade program, um, where they developed a lot of skills, did a lot of, you know, math and hands-on stuff and, and, um, and just kind of, um, learning every aspect of how a construction project, um, works. So, um, very, very popular and, um, in, in the, the, um, participants did extremely well. Um, we just started our second one. Um, uh, the unfortunate thing is, is that we had way more applications than we could, um, entertain. So we, you know, did have some process and we would have let down to, um, the number of participants that that we are eligible to have and um people are ready to go again and extremely excited to go through this training and um, our hope is is that every time we get through one pod we just roll right into another one Um, as we sit here the first group has uh, some of them have moved on to um, working with real companies and doing uh, real work and um 
and just uh, really receiving a tremendous amount of uh, information along the way. And and uh, everyone we've talked to in that program has been extremely satisfied with their experience. So it's been a really, really good thing for us. So these uh, these companies are are they mostly construction companies? Yeah, this the focus of these is the construction trade. We we really saw um, you know in Penobscot Nation Enterprises as well as when we um, when we build our uh, construction companies within that corporation, which we already have. Um, how can we get the most out of that in terms of um, tribal employment? Um, as you know, we're addressing some disparities in in that number, so we're we're trying to um, make sure that uh, we not only are creating opportunities, but we're also putting people in a position to be ready for those as well. So again, um, just been a tremendous program. Yeah, and we uh, and last time we also talked about uh, some some state issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I'm wondering, since we had that discussion about state issues, is there uh, any of those issues that uh, have come to the to the fore or that are uh, outstanding as we speak? Or mm. they've all been resolved. I'm, I'm kidding, <laughs> but <laughs> I, 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 um, I um, obviously uh, we deal in the areas of sovereignty, jurisdiction, tribal rights, and all of the. Um, battles that we kind of have is are still very much ongoing and we have um taking a real comprehensive strategic approach to how we um address those things you know we're firm believers and i'm a firm believer in diplomacy and 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 a whole lot of dignity in your government to government approach and um and you know as you know uh, serving in the legislature we often not only exhaust diplomacy, but um, we kind of fall into the definition of insanity. We kind of continue on with that dialogue. We get roped back in, and we we continue to try to work through uh, for results through similar processes, and things just don't work. So we're we really have broadened our our scope of of work on in this area. We we're a federally recognized tribe, um, so. We have a direct relationship with Congress and the federal government. Um, Congress is the only entity that possesses plenary authority over Indian tribes and have the right to determine policy. Um, they have all the mechanisms in place to for a government-to-government conversation around those policies. Um, you know, it's not always perfect at that level either, but it um, it's set up to to do what Congress is tasked to do, and that's fulfill its trust fiduciary responsibility to Indian tribes. So we have a multitude of issues. Um, You know, the Restrictive Settlement Act um, initiative through the United South and Eastern Tribe is really um, something that is extremely important to me. Um, It's an initiative that focuses on states that have taken um, settlement acts and instead of working through a unique framework um, to set up mechanisms for government-to-government discussions, for places to mitigate concerns like the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, um, and a host of other things, um, what we really see is that states have not utilized those mechanisms for dispute resolution, um, but rather have fallen into um, assuming a role that is 
way above anything that they were ever intended to have in terms of um, simply determining what a tribal right is or interpreting the act um, to fit kind of what's going on in the moment. So um, what gets lost in a lot of those discussions is that, you know, Congress is a a signator to this agreement as well, the federal government. And Congress has a role in in this relationship here in Maine. Um, and it's an equal role. It's it's a three-sovereign agreement. And, um, and what we're really trying to do is work with Congress and work with um, the administration and work with anyone that um, we believe has a role in this issue to educate them on the situation. And the situation is simply that the tribes, um, when you look at health disparities, when you look at the recent Wabanaki Health Assessment Survey, when you look at um, unemployment statistics, when you look at all of those things, um, the science is there to tell you that um, under this framework, with this approach, um, it's not working for the tribes. It's not, we're not overcoming our uh, social problems at a at a rate that um, was promised. We're not overcoming our economic problems, and we're certainly um, continuing to have these encroachment and um, sovereignty-based um, attacks happening almost every year. And and you know, so um, you know, I think when we do the research, you look at uh, thirty years after the Settlement Act, um, you'll see uh, a litigation process ensue almost every other year under that act. So it has um, been really contentious. It's The agreement has been um, one-sided, in my opinion, and it, it simply is not working for the tribes. So um, we're trying to not rewrite history. We're trying to get to a place that um, history intended us to be. And I think that um, what we're hearing is whether it's through the James Anaya report at the United Nations or whether it's within Congress itself, is these things are just not okay. You just can't um, one day write a letter to a tribe and tell them you're taking a third of their reservation as they know it and a huge piece of their culture and their cultural identity to um, just by simply putting pen to paper. And that's not the way um, the protections are supposed to work for Indian tribes. That's not the way Indian government status are, are held. And and we are supposed to be managing those affairs for ourselves. Yeah, and, it, and it seems that uh, the state of Maine has never recognized uh, tribal sovereignty uh, right from its beginning as a state. In it, uh, so I, I know that uh, you chair some committees on mm-hmm. the national level and... Um, I imagine that as you contact other uh, tribal nations and you talk to other tribes nationally, uh, they have uh, maybe have shown some sort of shock as to how Maine can get away with uh, not recognizing uh, the tribes federally. That's exactly right. And I think what's happening nationally now is people are really starting to look at Maine. They're starting to look at Maine. They're starting to look at at states that have these kind of policies, South Carolina comes to mind. Um, but you, what you, what we're hearing out there um, from very high-ranking members of Congress, as well as um, some prominent tribal leaders around the country, is, um, as you say, a, a very appalling look when you talk about these issues and how does that happen? And and you know, and 
that's not okay. And that's, a, that's just a lot of things that we hear. But, but what people are really trying to do is work with us to find solutions. And, um, and at least um, now we're starting to see the federal government, we're starting to see um, a whole host of national organizations really start to take notice, really start to say, um, we need, we're not going to just let states get away with whatever they want when it comes to um, the sovereignty of tribes, the inherent sovereignty of tribes. So what also gets lost in in all of this from a state's perspective is inherent sovereignty is not um, is not something that is granted to us by anyone but the creator, right? So we, we've always been here, um, always will be here. This is our ancestral territory and, and it's... Um, so inherent sovereignty is not something that can be just taken away. And I find it hard to believe that any tribal member ever sat in a room and said, um, yeah, we'll give up our sovereign status from here forward. Nobody can give that up, first of all. And secondly, it's just absurd to think that that was ever uh, a conversation that took place. So there is sovereignty by law and there's sovereignty by fact in in, um, in Ours is by fact, of course, and uh, we know this through uh, being in the same place for archaeology tells us over 10,000 years. Um, we know this because of our continuous governmental practices and, and um, continuous connection to our languages, to our cultural practices and ceremonies. So we know who we are and, and what our rights are, and um, it's important for people to recognize that. And it's not... Um, I think what also gets lost is the fight always becomes so much about control that um, what gets lost is that it, this is really not about that. It's not about the tribe being able to flex its muscles. It's not about um, any of those things. What it's about is the tribe being able to protect its very future. You know, as we know, um, our people have overcome a litany of atrocities over our history. Um, some of that through formal United States policy. And so the ability to self-govern and the ability to manage and protect those things is critical. We know that history tells us that. And it tells us that um, without when others come in to govern, when others come in to make those decisions for you, things never end well. And that's what we're looking to do. And as we were talking earlier, um, we understand totally that we're in a coexisting era and nobody is saying that um, this is us versus the world here. We have tremendous partnerships in this state. We love this state. It's our homeland. Uh, the people here are tremendous. And um, we do all we can to manage and protect those things while also respecting others. So, for example, we have this... Um, you know, we have this fight right now over our treaty fishing rights. And um, and I think that, uh, you know, people of Maine need to understand that this is not about us versus Maine citizens. This is about us versus people that want to take our rights away and a huge piece of our culture. And, and basically how serious that becomes is if Penobscots are no longer tied to the Penobscot River... Do you get to make the argument then that um, as our people existed, as our ancestors existed, um, that Penobscots today won't be able to exist in that form or fashion anymore? 
Um, and when you start talking in those terms, you're really talking about the termination of tribes. And those actions are, are that serious, in my opinion. You know, I've always thought that, uh, you know, right from the very beginning, since 1820, it's been the uh, state policy and state goal to actually terminate the tribes mm-hmm. and to assimilate them into, you know, overall society. Uh, and, you know, they've never let that goal go. They have always gone with that. And they could be just so much further uh, in, in resources and everything else if they, in fact, would stop that mindset and, and start working with the tribes instead of trying to eliminate them. Uh, and on... And I know that you're also you're on a bunch of national committees, and mm-hmm. this is probably an issue nationally, as I said earlier. And one of the committees you're on, I'm going to go through them here and, and just kind of ask you what you do on them. Uh, there's the USET uh, Executive Committee, mm-hmm. and what's that about? Well, USET, the United South and Eastern Tribes, represents 26 tribal nations from Texas to Maine, mostly east of the Mississippi, and what that organization is roughly 50 years old, and what it um, represents is a collective voice to address national policy on Native Americans at the federal level. And and what USED does is um, focuses on a litany of areas um, that are affecting Indian people, um, health care, you know, policy, um, budgets, all kinds of... Um, all kinds of areas. There's no shortage of, of issues that we face. Um, but nationally, USET has become a powerful presence. Um, and sitting on the executive committee, uh, there's four of us on that committee, um, gives me a real um, insightful look day to day and kind of how we're approaching those issues rather than kind of um, showing up at a board meeting, getting some emails and those types of things. I'm really engaged in that weekly. So it's... Um, it's, it's a real good opportunity for me to work on that national stage while also um, tying that into local success. Mm-hmm. And you're also the chair uh, of the Taxation Committee on USET. What does that involve? Yeah, and that's something I, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I ever thought I'd be doing that. But it's, um, to me, that's a sovereignty issue as well. And, you know, the Constitution simply says Indians not taxed. And what we see now is... Um, what we see now is IRS intrusion into uh, many aspects of tribal life. And, and what really concerns me is the general welfare exemption um, within the tax code that talks about, um, talks about how tribes are taxed on dollars they provide to their citizens um, for welfare benefits. So that would be um, funerary expenses for... Um, you know, for any shortfalls a family may have. Tribes, um, as you know, prioritize um, this period of time within a, within a tribal family's life as extremely important and sacred, and it's something that tribes um, all across America do. And so um, funeral assistance and um, things like getting families to medical appointments to be with their loved ones um, when they're in cities like Boston and other places. Um, And what we're seeing is the federal government coming in and um, wanting 1099s issued to those folks and treating it like income when these are the neediest of our people that are um, really 
getting these resources for a very specific and, and worthy cause. Um, so this idea that tribes are just backing up trucks of cash and handing it out so people can go on vacation is just absurd. Tribes are struggling to meet a lot of needs of, of, um, of their people. And, and so under this general welfare exemption, after 26 years now or so, uh, they're finally looking at um, redoing the code so that gives us an opportunity right now to have a voice in this. And, and as we sit here, I know of two tribes that um, are under full audit. Every tribal member, every member of the administration, um, everyone is um, under, under an IRS audit right now. And, you know, Indian gaming brought a lot of this attention onto Indian country. Um, but EGRA itself talks about the taxation, what's taxable, what isn't. And we just think it's uh, it's way too broad of a reach to start going into tribes and start to say, well, this council member went to that meeting and you paid them, that's income. You know, you have, which to me are very internal practices of the tribe that should be exempt from that. Plus also, um, you know, these very basic uh, needs issues that tribes address all the time in terms of, you know, gas dollars to get to medical appointments, um, transportation costs, um, you know, f again, the funeral expenses, etc. So, um, so to me, that, that is a real, it's a sovereignty-based issue and one that I kind of looked at and um, on its face, you say, well, I don't really want to get involved in a tax initiative, but then you start to look into it further and it's really kind of an encroachment issue that... Um, and I felt like it was a worthy cause to... It's to kind of strange that you've got the IRS zeroing in on tea parties and there's a big to-do about <laughs> yeah. the tea party thing with the IRS and and here they are zeroing in on tribes mm -hmm. and uh, probably nothing is being said about that. Well, you know, there, there didn't seem to be a lot of outcry. I think it, it, yeah. um, it came up... Um, but there are, you know, uh, Representative Nunez in, in Congress right now has a... Uh, has a very nice bill um, that's very favorable to Indians, uh, that's getting a lot of traction, has bipartisan support. And so um, so things things are uh, getting some traction, and at least the discussion is happening at a very high level. Yeah. And uh, you're, let's just do the USET stuff. The last thing I have here is that you're chair of the RSA initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, so we talked about some of that earlier, and it's the Restrictive Settlement Act initiative, and it's um, and we're represented by uh, a law firm in D.C. the the collective group. It represents seven tribal nations that are currently living with settlement acts that uh, um, are restrictive in nature and that have really impeded on um, on tribal rights through bad interpretations and just bad policy by by states and how they're addressing Indian tribes. So really when you look at um, all of these um, Restrictive Settlement Act tribes, you see kind of the same thing and, and use Maine as the example. As you know, uh, the tribes were basically wards of the state for a very, very long time. And um, we started voting in 1967 in this state. So um, regaining our rights has been a very, very difficult thing. But the last thing that was intended by this settlement was that that would continue, that, that we would continue to be parented by state government, that we would continue to be um, told what we can do, what we can do, 
um, economically, socially, um, how we develop our lands. So it's a multitude of issues, and it's um, it has just gotten to a point where um, the tribes have become so um, infiltrated by all of this that it's getting to a critical point. So the um, so I'm very proud to be part of that initiative, and it's something that's kind of my priority and near and dear to my heart because I think that um, tribes' abilities to be successful really depends on getting back to a place of mutual respect, of respect of inherent sovereignty, and figuring out a way. You know, the the two-row wampum talks about this. It talks about um, staying in your own canoe, right, and moving in the same direction. But at the end of the day, everybody's shooting for the same finish line, you know, prosperity, you know, health and vitality of our families and communities. And um, and through that, um, we play a significant role in, in the entire state's goals and objectives. Um, but we're constantly left out of that discussion because of um, this contentious relationship that is not... Um, it's not necessary, and it gets infantile at times, and it's um, and it's just uh, only ones it's hurting is main people. And you talked about some of this earlier, seeing the forest through the trees. I mean, there are so many opportunities in partnership. Other states that have these relationships thrive through um, cultural-based tourism, through uh, unique opportunities that tribes have with contracting, the ability to bring back manufacturing in a big way, the ability to um, focus on tax-free sales and uh, in the fuel industry. We all know that um, if you go to the grocery store today, um, it doesn't take long for you to get to $100 at a grocery store. It doesn't take long for you to get to $100 at the gas pump. It, it, it is, um, there is an ability to ease the pain on everyone if we work together. We could help the trucking industry. The trucking industry in turn could lower costs. There's just a multitude of things we could do to take advantage of tribal opportunity. And instead, um, we stymie investment. You know, the United States Treasury said that there was a $44 billion discrepancy in monies going into Indian country. Um, The reason for that over 90% of the reasoning for that is over um, jurisdictional disputes. So what you have is um, companies wanting to invest in Indian country, but they come to a place like Maine, and we've seen this in in wind power development and other things, and say, look, um, we're not going to invest $200 million into, into your territory without understanding the stability of your relationship with the state. Why? Because we don't want to be jammed up in court for however long and um, have money that's already risky um, be put at even more risk. So that has really hurt the tribe's ability to overcome um, a lot of economic uh, disparity. Yeah, and it's hurt the state too. It has. Uh, so the Senate, uh, the uh, this RSA committee that you're on, um, will you be sort of like, sharing information with the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs? Mm-hmm. And do you foresee the Senate Committee maybe reopening hearings on settlement acts? Or? I do. And I think that, again, you know, the important thing here is is that um, they have a formal role in our settlement. 
they are a signator. So um, when we go to the um, Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, and I spent time with them just last week um, to make the case that, you know, um, we're not telling you what it is. We're just asking for you to listen. And we think that when you've heard all sides of this, of where we are, what was intended, the environment around the settlement, uh, a lot of those things, that you will understand that we are as far from what people expected as we're saying we are. And once that's determined, how do we get back to a place that creates a situation for mutual benefit and um, mutual understanding and respect? And so the Senate committee um, has been very, very open-minded, and they're listening, and also members of Congress on the House side um, the House Natural Resource Committee, actually, which is uh, kind of the Indian Affairs Committee on the House of Representatives side. So we've worked really hard in that system to try to get some. One of the things that's really missing from all of these settlement issues is the ability to have some kind of impartial third-party dispute resolution, right? And we believe the only place that can happen is within Congress. Um, to understand, first of all, and they're the ones, the only ones with the authority to do anything about it. So, um, so it makes sense that we would be there. And we've, you know, it doesn't come without its share of resistance. And I mean, we're, we're fighting through those things. And, and one of the things that I've realized, um, maybe it took me longer than I should to, but, um, is that I don't have to pound my fist and I don't have to, um, get emotional and we don't have to, um, act irrational, what we have to do is just show them the history. And certainly the history is there. If you go back to, I mean, Maine is way ahead of the game among other states in terms of documenting the issues. We have an at loggerheads report. We have a two-year work group report. We have emails where we've been compared to the Ku Klux Klan. We have um, just a litany of, um, by the way, blocking all that to argue against blocking tribes from um, praying at a at a sacred site. Um, so it's um, so we have this whole history of this this kind of behavior, and um, and I think that um, when when you lay all that out, you know, people are just stunned. People are stunned that um, Native Americans in 2013 can be still living in this condition. And, and, and not only not only outside of Maine, but Maine citizens are stunned as well. That's growing yeah. as well. Maine, Maine people are starting to understand that um, they've been duped a little bit in terms of, um, you know, the state does a very, very good job, and we're seeing this recently, of, of telling Maine citizens that, you know, this is the big bad Indians and you, and we're sticking up for you, and they're trying to take this, and they're trying to do that, and they're going to open up a casino and take all our money, and they're going to be, you know, all of these things, and... Um, but I think Maine people are really starting to realize that we're not all that far apart in what we want um, and that we're kind of all in this together when it comes to our environment, when it comes to, you know, and Maine citizens um, really want to embrace tribal culture. They understand that it's that it's this state's face. They understand that it's as much of the state's history as anything. And to see that disappear would be... Um, extremely disappointing to a lot of people. So I think that um, people understand that, uh, starting to understand that, you know what, this really isn't about, this is about 
a few people that are extremely bothered by any independence of the tribes. Yeah, exactly. And, and those few people just happen to be in places of power and have mm-hmm. been in places of power now for, oh, at least 30 years. Exactly. Um, so, and then you, you chair uh, a, a committee for uh, National Congress of American Indians, and that is the uh, Natural Resources Committee. That's right. And, and um, I really like the work I do there as well um, with some very talented people. It's the National Congress of American Indians' largest committee, um, with almost 200 tribes in that committee typically. Um, well, we have four subcommittees underneath that committee. So we, um, we do a lot of work around, you know, tar sands extraction and how that's getting into the United States, Keystone Pipeline issues, uh, San Francisco peaks with wastewater being dumped on a sacred site to create snow. We have um, a lot of uh, Everglades cleanup, um, 2,400 acres of federal land being transferred to a international mining company in Arizona possessing extremely sensitive sacred sites. Um, so we we deal with a host of those issues. And um, what that tells us, me, how that educates me um, for a local benefit is how to engage these issues locally when we see things like um, proposed east-west highways and um, that will be energy corridors that we don't know. Um, I mean, there's two parts to this to these problems, to fracking, to tar sands, to there's the actual thing that's happening on the ground and the ruining of ecosystems and drinking water supplies and all of the things that are happening. I'm glad you brought that up because we were just talking earlier about the article in the Bangor Daily. Uh, It's about what do they want to do at the bog? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just reading in the paper today that they're um, proposing a um, 30-year lease to mine slate and build rock quarries and do some blasting and those types of things in in areas that um, are extremely sensitive from an eco standpoint. I mean, they have wildlife in those things. They have certain types of um, plant and vegetation life that, I mean, so I just think it speaks to, um, and we were concerned about this. Native people, when I say we, Native people were concerned about this five years ago. They said, it's going to be a feeding frenzy as this economy collapses because it'll be the second land grab and the practices will get less and less responsible because the goal then is going to be trying to cover the economic gap. Yeah. So what are we seeing? We're seeing a lot of that. And so, um, so our concern is not, you know, we're not anti-development. We're not anti-mill. We're not anti any of those things. I think we're just asking for a responsible pass forward, um, especially when those affect our homelands. So you have um, energy corridors. We don't know what kind of pipelines those will be. Um, we don't know what will be piped in them, what the, what the potential risk is, how that affects our river, how it affects. So, yeah. so those are all the, the kind of things but, that we can bring home. To. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to read that article in Bangor Daily. And it, is it talking about the Orono Bog, where the bog walk is? Yeah. To go in there and, and dig that up and... Yeah. Wow. And not, uh, I don't think it digs up the boardwalk, but it's in that proximity. It's in there. It'll affect it. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So those are all the types of issues that you see locally, that nationally you can get tons of education on how those issues are approached with 
whether it's dam removal, whatever it is. So, um, so I get a lot of value out of participating in those national organizations. Yeah, and uh, and you know, I, I just I'm thinking that you know, you go out there and you see how uh, other tribes are benefiting from federal laws, and um, we're not. Mm-hmm. We're not, and I think that uh, we're the only tribe in the country where federal law. Uh, doesn't apply to us. Right, and and so there's the state of Maine has done a good job for 30 years of saying, um, and they've steadfast, stayed steadfast on this point, is that there's no federal relationship in Maine. The Settlement Act created the relationship that, and of course we know that's not true. Congress um, is the only entity that uh, has any authority of that level over tribes. Secondly, um, just because Congress um, delegated an authority to change the Settlement Act, it didn't give the state of Maine plenary authority over the Maine tribes. And the practice and the history tells us that by the millions of dollars in the trust fiduciary relationship to run our programs that we receive from federal federal government, the um, the tremendous um, protections that are in place for the tribe. And we see that in our recent fishing rights case. Um, And the federal government, I mean, to me is saying, well, that's nice. You've done a, that you've set up this little statue in Maine and that you're, you're thinking the world revolves around that, but it doesn't. And um, we have responsibilities to these tribes. We're going to protect them. And, um, and this is exactly what we're supposed to be protecting them from encroachment, loss of land, loss of culture, um, and ultimately uh, termination, right? So that's that's what um, the promise was. So you have um, a lot of things going on in the sovereignty arena um, under federal law. You know, we had the Stafford Act uh, amendment thing that we talked about last time I was on where um, our own delegation, our own senator kind of stepped in and said, well, FEMA's position is this applies to all tribes. Um, Congress's position is this applies to all tribes. But I'm going to put on the congressional record that this doesn't apply in Maine. So when you have those kind of efforts to solidify all under the guise of we don't want to disrupt the Maine relationship, right? Well, in newsflash, it's a little disrupted, right? So the... the um, the point here is is that you see, even at the federal level, we have our challenges. So you're right, there's a mindset to block the main tribes from accessing federal acts passed for the benefit of Indians, like violence against women, where in our own community, we have those same statistics as nationally. Our women are three times more susceptible to um, sexual assault and domestic abuse. So um, we know that. So the... Um, laws like VAWA are extremely important for our tribe to implement. Uh, we're working with the Department of Justice right now on implementing that, that law. Tribal Law and Order, you know, Clean Air, Clean Water Acts, the Affordable Care Act, all of those things, um, you know. But what really confuses me on this issue is the kind of schizophrenia around these things. Some acts go through, they get applied, there's no question about it nobody says anything um, but you get something like the Indian Game and Regulatory Act and the fight's on and so um, 
which is another inequity. You know, uh, whether you agree with gaming, don't agree with gaming, um, our tribe has not um, taken a formal vote on casino gambling in a long time. So I don't know where we are on that issue. But I do know this, from a rights-based standpoint, um, we're extremely disappointed that we now have two commercial casinos in this state. We have um, proposals to create a commercial bidding process that will exclude the tribes. The tribes won't have the resources to competing that. Um, so you could have up to four commercial facilities, and I would dare say all of them are going to be owned by out-of-state entities, and no tribal gaming operations after 25 years of trying. How is that okay? So, um, so some might say, well, what makes you any better than anybody else? Well, the facts are is our, it's not um, a race-based issue. It's not we're Indian, so we deserve this. It's a distinct governmental status issue. And uh, the ability to economically develop as we see fit and Congress passes these laws after much debate. I mean, you think that bill was easy to get through the Congress? I'm sure it wasn't. And in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, what the state doesn't realize is there are more protections for states in that act than there are for Indians. It's called the maybe we should have called it the State Gaming Regulatory Act or something. It might have <laughs> might not have been so um, intimidating, but it's um, but it's really. It's one, one area where you can really see the inequities, and I think that it just lends to um, kind of the economic being left behind position that the tribes have been in for a long time. And we know that poverty is the root of a lot of our issues. Yeah, exactly. And it, it all boils down to uh, economic issues, no matter mm-hmm. what you talk about, you know, resources or, or, or you know, gaming or whatever. Uh, that's the bottom line. Now, uh, the word sovereignty, I was at a meeting this past week, and uh, someone brought up, well, you know, sovereignty, just, isn't that a scary word for Maine politicians, sovereignty? And I said, oh, absolutely it is. And uh, someone else said, well, maybe we should, we should uh, not use the word sovereignty when we're talking about these things. Maybe we should use another word. Well... I don't, you know, I'm kind of going back and forth about that, and, and my response was, well, you know, uh, sovereignty is the legal term, mm-hmm. and it's embedded in the laws, so it's going to be very hard for us to replace that with a less scary word. What's your thought on that one? Well, yeah, I think, you know, I think uh, the word is, if we're really going to be talking about what, intimidates people by what we call it it's it's really not getting to the root cause of the issue the root cause of the issue is inherent sovereignty creates a distinct political and governmental status for the tribe it creates an autonomous situation and independence that all sovereigns enjoy the united states constitution recognizes tribal sovereignty it doesn't grant it it recognizes it Um, it recognizes three sovereigns in this country the federal government tribes and states but it recognizes tribes on a much different level Um, tribes have treaties and treaties are not made between the federal government and states they're made between nations so when you have um, this nation-to-nation relationship um, that's what scares people 
what scares and and that condition uh, the result of that autonomous status is never going to go away so i think that um what really bothers people is loss of regulatory control over whether that's over certain territories or governing people in general um so I think what we're really talking about when we talk about sovereignty is autonomy. And and that is, um, I think, what drives people crazy. Yeah, it's funny you should wor- use the word autonomy because that word was brought up at the meeting. Mm-hmm. They said, well, isn't autonomy, wouldn't that be a better word? Well, yeah, it would be a better word and it would cover the meaning better, but you know what? wouldn't cover the legal right. term. Um, so anyway, you um, recently uh, had been to D.C. for couple days mm-hmm. in the past what week or so yeah i uh, want to tell us about that sure um so we had tribal unity week in in washington dc um where we you know tribal leaders fly in and they set up a host of congressional meetings mine were specifically focused around um settlement issues and uh our recent uh federal lawsuit so we um I spent a lot of time with uh, members of Congress, people like Betty McCollum and Tom Cole and um, Representative Simpson and uh, Cardenas from Los Angeles and um, Don Young from Alaska, all these folks, Maria Cantwell on the Senate side. So we had had, uh, some really high-level meetings with people that are charged with the protections of Indians um, to talk about we talked about a few issues, but um, predominantly we talked about the um, uh, Settlement Act. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out um, what Congress's role could be in addressing this. And um, and I have to tell you, those meetings went very well. And I think that uh, members of Congress, especially within the Native American caucus, are, are really concerned. They're concerned about... Um, second-class Indians, they're concerned about or, or tribes being treated that way, or treated as second-class sovereigns, they call it. Because what we had right up until the 1960s and 70s was a common goal, right? Fighting to keep culture, keep our practices in place, keep our communities intact, trying to um, um, keep our governmental status where it is, fighting for our language, doing all of those things, all tribes were faced with that. Then the politics start. Well, you know, you have PL280 tribes, you have 638 tribes, you have all of these um, kind of disparities out there and how tribes are dealt with in terms of their relationships. So um, then the issues start to get different, you know, as tribes start to take advantage of IGRA, you start to have an economic class of tribes growing away from others. So the disparity gaps not only exist between Indians and mainstream America, they now exist within Indian country. So um, so Congress is extremely concerned about that. You also look at um, the health disparities where, you know, where we see uh, the huge diabetes problem, we see the huge hypertension problem, you see um, heart disease, you see... All of these things are at least two to three times the national average. Why is that? In 2013, mind you, um, 30 years after the Settlement Act, why is the economic condition from one side of the bridge to the other side triple? 
why why is the unemployment rate triple in that you know 200 yard drive why is that so um what the studies show is that um not only the unemployment rate is actually worse. I mean, it's it's it shows us you know approaching thirty percent from time to time um, in our unemployment rate, which is very good among Maine tribes, by the way. Um, so I think that highlights the condition that exists. Um, but beyond that, what the study showed was that um, even at three times the rate of state unemployment, those tribal people that are working are working at a poverty level, over 50% of them. So um, while over 50% of Maine citizens, the average Maine citizens makes over $50,000 a year. So it shows you um, that decades and decades and decades and a century of getting left behind in the economy, having all your natural resources taken for profit and you not participating in that or those resources not being used for what they should have been under state Indian agents, et cetera, um, has led to a situation where everybody likes to think of those problems in the past, but the results of those policies and practices are very much here today. So you have that condition that still exists and it's not, people will, you know, you'll see the comments here and there about, you know, they should get off the reservation, they should, um, get off welfare, they should do this, do that. Well, the fact of the matter is we have a very, very low general assistance rate. And you might say, well, how do you have three times the unemployment rate and um, in this low general assistance rate? Well, for many reasons. The tribe is positioned to um, provide very short-term, very unique situations through its workforce investment program. Um, one we talked about earlier, but also we have an ongoing um, we are funding to slot people temporarily. Um, so we're not breeding long-term general assistance type people. I mean, that's a stereotype that is just unfair. And so um, what we have at Penobscot is in a community of 700 that lives in the community, we know this year alone we have 120 people in higher education. We're graduating people every year. Now we're starting to see in our job applications, whereas 20 years ago you might get two qualified applicants, we now have 20. And they're not at bachelor's levels, they're at master's levels. We have doctors, Indian doctors, Indian lawyers. Um, we're, we're really building our capability from an education standpoint. And I've never seen people that are more creative and have such a work ethic um, than the people I've gotten to work with over the last six years. And it is, um, we have a, we really do have an amazing staff. We have amazing people and uh, we have a community that holds us accountable every day. And so, um, so I, I couldn't be prouder of all the work we're doing. I think we're overcoming some of these things. And I think right now what we're really starting to see is a whole change in attitude on how Native Americans are dealt with. I think this president has brought some of that attitude um, adjustment on, but I do think that Congress is legitimately concerned about um, the independence of Indian tribes and making sure that they have the ability to thrive. Because why is that changing in Congress? Because of what I just said, we have unreal people that are going in and they're articulating the, the argument. And they're saying, um, 
you don't just do this because it's your responsibility to do it. Here's why we need this fixed. And, um, and you know, over multiple meetings, you start to see these congressional folks start to shake their head. You know what? You know, this is a worthy cause, whether it's, you know, fighting the land of trust issue or, you know, one of the things we said last week was everybody touts the accomplishments, right? That's kind of what politicians do. We take credit and deflect blame. But the, um, but the, um, when we stood at the podium, we said, before we go breaking our arm, patting ourselves on the back, you don't have to look too far behind you to see, um, you know, Carcieri, Patchak, baby Veronica, all of the things that um, continue to happen every day. So um, one of my good friends in the somebody I respected very much in the in the Congress was Dale Kildee. And he always carried his constitution in his pocket and he was he loved Indians. And he said, you know, chief, he said, they're gonna they're gonna um, do it with a smile and a sliver at a time. So you'll, this thing will be going on over here, but you'll lose a sliver here. And the next thing you know, when you start to tally up the score, you're, um, you're just as far behind as when you started. So it's important to keep your eye on that ball as well. And I think that um, we do a pretty good job of that. And, and again, you know, I think it's a credit. One thing the history has shown us is that through all these atrocities, whether it was Norwich Walk or um, whatever has happened to us, whether it was the the 1755 proclamation calling for bounties on Penobscots, whether it was um, bad adoption policy and boarding schools. And one of the things that history does tell us, though, is that our people are extremely resilient and that um, we will overcome these things. And we went through horrific periods of times where now people look back on that. Everybody looks back on that, um, Indian or not, and says... That was a truly horrific time. And I believe we're in an era that will get looked back on and with some shame. And I think people are going to say um, that was uh, that was a really bad time for Native Americans in Maine. Um, and it's not okay. You know, it's not okay that we behave that way. So I, I really I really believe that um, that we're in an era of overcoming these things. And, and hopefully in our lifetime we'll get to see a condition where our kids um, are not even talking about it anymore. And it's um, we're breeding a whole generation of leaders that are focusing on prosperity and excellence and, and dignity and governmental status and jurisdiction. But at the same time, they're doing that in a, uh, in a very um, partnership kind of way that, um, that we haven't been afforded. So, um, so my hope is, is that, uh, is that we just continue to work on these things and we continue to get a piece at a time back and and um and we continue to to fight for what's right and and that's what we'll do so you know being in augusta um there are many good people out there and at the end of the day um we have a lot of friends and you know unfortunately as you put it it can boil down to two or three people at the end of the day or a handful of people um but I have to believe that right will win the day at some point. Well, I think it's going to it's going to help us too that we have uh, <clears throat> help on an even higher level than the uh, congressional level now, and uh, that's the uh, United Nations level, yeah. where you know we've got sort of the world looking in uh, at how Maine is treating the the, the tribes here. 
exactly. And I, I think that United Nations piece is huge. I mean, for a special rapporteur to say that you have a human rights condition by the way policy is being inflicted on the people, uh, the indigenous people of Maine, um, and now you're seeing him simultaneously open up investigations in Canada over these same issues. Um, I have to think that um, that 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 only serves to help our cause here, and and I think that all of this stuff helps us put the science behind our argument. And I will just say that I would be willing to sit anywhere with anyone at any time and debate this issue and not know how we don't come out on top of that argument. Yeah, yeah, totally agree, and and um, hopefully we'll be able to uh, educate. Uh, Maine, mm-hmm. Maine citizens as well as uh, citizens across the country about how we've been treated since uh, 1820. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, is there one last comment you'd like to make? Well, just that I appreciate being here and talking about this, and I think that it's a complex issue. And, uh, and again, I just would like to reiterate that Maine citizens should know, no matter what they see over the coming months about Um, contention and complexities with our governments between state and tribal governments that this fight is never about um, us and them it's it's really about getting policies in line so we can coexist in a respectful fashion and that's that's really what we're trying to accomplish great great thank you kirk uh thank you for joining us i'm your host donna loring and you've been listening to wabanaki windows the music for our show was by Rolf Richter, track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guest, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation, for joining us today. And tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows.